Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Well, if it isn't Nancy Rommelman. It's me. My nemesis. <laughs> I thought you were going to say my Nancy. Um, do you know... This since I kind of tee up the episodes, this is our fifty fourth episode that we're um that we're recording, and it just reminded me to tell you that when I was fourteen, I did go to studio fifty four That's all I'm saying it's not a big deal, like I've told you before, we've got some missing blanks about your teen years <laughs> well, I wrote- mine is well documented there's a there's a book. And it has some wild stories about stealing beer at 11. You've been dropping some clues around some like Drew Barrymore style uh, wildness. And I know it was the 70s. I know. But listen, listen, I'm just going to say, no pun intended, my life is a literal open book because there is a short like 24 page memoir an essay called the queens of montague street you can go over to amazon and buy it i i wrote that and i was on um so with my story a murder in portland uh the commentary podcast had me on last week we'll put a link to it and john Podhoritz very kindly not once but twice pumped the queens of montague street because apparently he read it years ago um it's short uh it just does tell you about a slice of time and my life if anybody's interested in it but yeah there was a you know new york in the 70s anybody that was here it was like more for me mid later 70s um Obviously, there's tons of crime. But the thing about it is like you had the parents that it was the 70s. So they weren't around. They were busy like having affairs or they'd split up or group therapy or whatever. It wasn't even that. It wasn't like abandonment. It's just you had your parents split up. Oh, yeah. Um, It's just it's like they, they weren't like watching over you. It's like you're 14. Like deal with it. Like I was taking the bus from the time I was nine by myself. And um, but besides that, like they didn't even really know where you were necessarily. Um, the city was like yours. If we wanted to go to like the top of a skyscraper and like sit on the top of it and look at, we could. Nobody stopped you. It was just the city really was ours. And uh, so I wrote a little about that. So if you're not interested in me, which I could completely understand, you might be interested in New York City at that time. And I, I think it is a little bit of a slice of uh, New York there. So we'll put a link in the uh, show notes. Queens of Montague Street, pumping myself. Well, I like, so. first of all, pumping yourself. I'm never going to stop you doing that. <laughs> that sounds incredibly hot. I do that too sometimes. And I think we should talk about it. <laughs> that's an, that's all, a bonus. <laughs> okay. Um uh, I like how you responded to my, you know, like earnest question about your your ha- past history by telling me to go read something. Which I, was good. It's good. I can't believe I haven't read it. It's twenty four pages. It's I so fast. You, so I should know this about you. Um, I will read this and then I'll come back with questions. I'm going to interview you about that book. Oh, sure. That'll be fun. Um, I think I actually recorded it at some point oh, good. somewhere. Um. It's not it's not a for sale. And you know what? I'm getting a little bit of an echo. Yeah. And last time you asked me, is there an echo? And I was like, not at all. And then I listened to the episode and it was like, is there an echo? Echo, echo, echo. Okay. I'm going to stay very close to the mic. How do I say Your levels are insane. That's that's what he said. Um okay. So we're gonna we're just gonna give it a shot here. So um Actually, talking about publishing, if I may, so Queens of Montague Street, uh, I'll just tell you how that happened. It was um, 
I'd kind of written an essay. I kind of noodled on it, didn't ever do anything with it, S- submitted it to the New Yorker at one point. Didn't, they didn't want it. Um, it was New Year's Day 2012, and everybody in my house was hungover but me. I had not really drunk very much the night before. And I decided just to put the essay on my blog at the time. And when my sister-in-law woke up, she had a small publishing company at the time uh, called uh, Dimax- Dimaxian. And sounds like Nexium. Did they brand each other? It was after the whole Buckminster Fuller kind of thing on Dimaxian. Mm -hmm. Like anyway, she's like she had a she had was involved in some books that they were publishing, kind of self publishing on Amazon, which a which a very big deal about ten. 12, 15 years ago, right? You could write something and you could publish it. Now, of course, most of it is crap because most writing is crap. Um, But also you have to actually put it out well. Like you've got to have your pages aligned. You have to have the type. It has to look nice in order to sell. Anyway, she's like, Nancy, why don't we, um, why don't you let me publish this instead of you just putting it on your blog for free? We'll sell it for like $2.99 or something. Well, someone at the New York Times saw it. I wound up writing a lives piece for the, the New York Times based on the thing. So it is an interesting avenue. You actually can make it work. Uh, I think they've changed it since then. Um, Over on Amazon, you can still do it. And someone that did it a number of years ago, I'm not going to, what, go ahead. Before we pivot, before you make this skillful, frictionless pivot. I know, I know. I've got something in my head that's going to make me crazy if I don't get it out. Okay. You said to our listeners that it was the 54th episode but it's going to be confusing to them because it will probably be labeled as the 51st or 52nd. Right. Because because it doesn't it the, the episodes don't align exactly with the numbers. So I just needed to clarify that for yeah. people that were confused and looking at the number on this. I just want everyone to be able to listen to the pivot you're about to make. Yes, we had a couple of lost episodes, whether it was like technical stuff or we just decided to ditch on them. Anyway, um, self-publishing has been going on for a while. I don't know if it's as popular as it once was, but um, a few years ago, I think starting in 2017, there was an author um, and she started doing some uh, self-published romance. Now, I like this. I like where this is yeah, going. Yeah, romance is a very, I actually it's a have, huge genre. It's a it's huge genre. Massive, massive, massive. I mean, there's magazines, there's there's imprints just devoted to uh, to romance. I actually have never read a romance novel, but I've obviously seen them. They're everywhere. You can, they're like the pot boilers with the like bodice well, ripping a, covers. What's a romance novel? I mean, I mean, I don't, I'm not asking for a definition, but I'm just saying like, I'm thinking about like when I was a kid reading things like Forever by Judy Bloom or VC Andrews stuff, you know, like, okay, like I definitely read some like pot boilers. What's a pot boiler? I don't know. It's uh, something that's boiling a pot somewhere. Yeah, the boiling. It's stuff that I guess kind of like gets your blood boiling. And in terms of romance novels, these are the ones, these are like, they call them the bodice rippers. Like if it's historical, there's a woman with like her long, you know, gown kind of coming off her shoulder. And if it's, uh, you know, and if it's, if, if it's this particular author that I'm referring to, um, it's usually a man and a woman in an embrace and the man always has a little beard and I'm sorry about the echo. I'm doing my best here. 
you think that Fifty Shades of Grey and Twilight are romances? So in terms of Fifty Shades of Grey, is that a romance book? I guess it is. I didn't read it. I will tell you I was in Powell's books, I guess, the year it came out. And I had definitely heard about Fifty Shades of Grey. And I was kind of looking at some section. And these two women came in, middle-aged women. They came in, they were like, they came in on a gust of excitement. You could feel like the cold air crackling around them. And they went up to the desk and they're like, do you have the book? Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. They were so ready for they were this. Ready for it. Ready yeah, which is this kind of phenomena that I think we're going to talk about. But first, I want to talk about this particular author, who I believe 2017 was when she, we're talking about self-publishing, she started to self-publish some books on Amazon. And they had titles uh, like Chance Encounter. There was also nice. Chance, Chance Encounter 2 was a couple name, years was later. Was guy's name Chance? Oh, I don't know. I haven't read yeah, any of these. I, I hope did. So. Okay. And th- of course, you're, God, you're so smart, Sarah. Um, one is called uh, Losing Him and Finding You. Another is called Finding I read that Brene Brown book. Did you? And another is called Finding Me. I guess there's a lot of finding oh, God. in these books. There's a lot and- of like standing in your truth. Right. Finding your voice, right. being your authentic self. So like, you're like this Tootsie Pop that like you can lick down to the center of the 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 Tootsie Roll and that's your authentic self. Your chocolatey authentic your chocolatey, self. Chocolatey uh, to- toffee. Your chocolatey goodness, center. Sarah. It's your chocolatey goodness. Stop okay? sexting me while we're I, recording. I, look, uh, this is why people like the show. Okay, Don't I'm tell gonna, people my secrets. I'm going to read a tiny little bit, the opening actually of a book, which was, I believe, uh, the last of these author author's books for now. And I'm just going to, it's called Special Delivery and it opens just, <laughs> just great. I let my best friend talk me. Do you think that I'm sorry? Do you think the special delivery is love? I'm just I'm sorry, but like, what do you think it is? It could be a letter, like a postman oh. comes up to your door when he whistles. It's like special delivery, ma'am. Could be. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. 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 I'm, gonna right. I'm gonna listen. I'm gonna okay. listen. All right. Um, just great. I let my best friend talk me into another blind date, and here I sit at a local bar alone again. Yep. Late. Once again, a no-show. Seriously, having a dating life is way overrated. Instead of sitting in this bar, I could be at home with a good book, a glass of wine, and my favorite boyfriend, B.O.B. I don't know what that means. Maybe it's her cat. I don't know. The best thing about him is he doesn't wander off, so I guess it's not her cat. Sounds I'm like gonna a robot. S- I, we're going to get to that later, aren't we, Sarah? Um, this is like skip- a black mirror uh, Ro- romance, isn't it? Uh, well... But we're getting what are you clairvoyant? Hold on now, lady. Um, okay, then there's like a bit of a meet cute. This guy tries to buy her a drink, he's like a cowboy at the, the bar. She says no, but eventually she says yes. I'll just read the last part. So, this is the like the end of the first little section of the book. Mac, give us another round of tequila. So, what brings a young lady out on a Wednesday night in this city? Another blind date that didn't work out for me. Seriously. I wonder what all the fuss is about. Don't get me wrong. Dating is great, but not everyone is meant to settle down and have a perfect family. It seems like every one of my friends is always trying to fix me up with the perfect guy. Nodding his head in agreement, he adds, you could have a nosy little sister trying to fix you up with her new friend every week. 
motioning for another round. Hey, Mac, set us up a few more of those if you don't mind. Wonder why every married person thinks all singles need or want a relationship. That's right. Why can't the married friends just sit back and watch us all have fun? I yeah. Ask, I ask as I pick up another shot glass and clink it to his. Ooh, round, undercutting her point. Clink it. Round three of tequila is making talking to a stranger so much more comfortable. Okay, so... I'm going to just say, based on this, this is, you know, this isn't Dostoevsky, but, you know, I guess there's a market for it. Um, I liked this. I liked with this so far. And honestly, this is somewhat the subject of my second memoir. And I find this far superior and I have decided to quit public life. Well, you know what, Sarah, then you may be able, you may want to follow this writer's example. Okay, Okay. 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 Her name is Susan Meachin. Uh, Two years ago, when this book was mostly done, uh, this book called, uh, what is Special it? Special Delivery. Special Delivery. Uh, no, 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 that wasn't the last book. The last book is Love to Last a Lifetime. Susan Meacham's last book was called Lust, Love to Last a Lifetime. You said Lust to Last a Lifetime, and that well, one I would buy. Lady. Um, it was a wedding gift to her daughter, but it was published posthumously because Susan Meacham died, unfortunately, by suicide. Um, her daughter uh, went on her Facebook page and made the announcement, but they, I guess they finished the book so they could publish it. Um, but there were also a lot of allegations on this Facebook page that Susan Meachin had been bullied, had been terribly mm-hmm. bullied by the author community. And I want to just break for a second and say, this is actually something that does happen. I mean, you know, writers write, you know, and the pen is mightier than the sword. And if you want to hurt someone, like deliberately for some reason, and you can do it publicly, you know, writers are pretty good at this, right? Well, they, one of the things that's happened is that writers have always been incredibly petty and incredibly jealous as a breed, but they didn't have such uh, <clears throat> channels to be able to do that pu- so publicly right. and with so much um, kind of a direct hit. You know, you never knew if you're, if you're, all your writer friends were talking shit about you. You never had an idea. And now there's this like evidence trail. And also this coincides with a time when there are more people wanting to be in an artistic profession like writing and fewer chairs at the table. Well, so it's just, it's, it's a bad combination. Well, the thing is that, yes, the, the, the one thing about, you know, the publishing industry, you know, there's fewer chances, there's more challenges. I, I think there's always opportunity, but let, let's face it. I mean, being able to self publish on Amazon and sell your books on Amazon was an incredible coup. And some people did incredibly well. Um, Susan Meacham had about, I think they're about 12 books. Now, I don't know. How did they sell? Well, I read somewhere where they didn't, they didn't really sell at all. Like her profits were basically zero, which is, which is completely the norm for people self-publishing. Why are you saying she's a success? Well, I'm saying she's a success because she's been in the news a lot lately. Okay, and I I will also say that um, why was Susan Meacham in the news? Susan Meacham was in the news because uh, earlier this month, Susan Meacham came back from the dead. Now, I, do you know anyone that's come back from Jesus, the dead? Jesus, right, did this. Jesus did. So now it's only Jesus and Susan Meacham. But now we have proof that somebody else did it, and that makes me think that it's more likely that somebody else did it. We could have friends. That have done it and they just kind of keep it on the DL, you know, they're yeah. just like not going to brag about it. But Susan Meacham apparently decided that it was time for her to come back. And she made the announcement, I guess, on that same Facebook page where she had where she, her her death had been 
announced. How um, long ago had she died? Two years. Good two years. night. Now, now, let's let's just say. So I'm not exactly sure what Susan Meacham was expecting. If she expected people to be like, oh my God, thank God, you know, or just like utter shock. Well, what do you, what do you, what do you prognosticate the reaction was, Sarah? Anger, Anger. resentment, WTF. Right. Betrayal. Um, There had been apparently uh, after she died, a group of these writers, like romance novelists, paranormal romance novelists. They actually uh, dedicated or put together an anthology of something called Supernatural Bully Romance, which another word for that is cruel hero paranormal romance. Oh, supernatural bully romance. That's Superna- one of my favorite <laughs> genres. Anyway, they dedicated or they, they put together this anthology for her. Well, she comes back and people are, look, I think it would be wrong to say they weren't. I don't know that you could be angry that someone wasn't dead. And mixed up maybe like Stalin or something. But they were really shocked and pissed off. And I can easily understand that. Uh, I guess she kind of wanted her life back. But in fact, Susan Meachin had never really disappeared because she had been posting pretty much, I think, the whole time, like defending Susan Meacham and how everybody had been so terrible to her under a different name, T.N. Steele, which turned out to be her. It also turns out that I don't think she actually has a family or a daughter. So who was writing these things like you bullied my mother and she left me this book for my marriage? It's just this incredible, well, not really incredible. I mean, it's not actually that clever um, of a situation, but it 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 did, it to quote Camille Foster, it did create something of a kerfluffle. He says kerfuffle. He doesn't add he, an L in there. No, he does. He says kerfluffle. That's why I'm saying. That's why I'm saying it like that. Okay. Anyway, um, um, I have a question. Yes. I've, actually, I have so many questions. Who is this Susan Meachin? Do is this even her real name? Where does she live? Who is she? What do we know about her? Well, we don't know a lot about her. And I was listening to our our pals over on Blocked and Reported, and Katie Herzog actually tried to find um, anything about Susan Meacham, including a death notice or a fake death notice or whatever, and she couldn't really find her. So the assumption is it's a pen name, which would make sense. I mean, plenty of people use pen names when you're self-publishing because also you can then have like four different pen. I, at one point, remember Sassy magazine? Remember sure. that magazine? I was writing so much for Sassy. I had two pen names. One I'll oh tell you, the other I won't because the other one I, I still use occasionally for like whatever. What? But one, This is totally new information. Hello. What? One was, oh, I'll tell you. Anyway, um, one was Gina Longobardi. That was one. And the other is Trina Coburn. Um, I had a blog for a while called Trina Coburn. It was just a, a name. Um, so uh, I don't know if she really exists. Uh, she was apparently still skulking around on social media, including having a TikTok the entire time she was dead uh, under this particular name. Now, what's interesting about this to me, you know, look, I've I've written about a bunch of hoaxers. I've written about people that have faked illnesses. I mean, this is this is what some people do. But we were talking a little bit before we got uh, on the air here um, about why people do this. Why do people p- 
pretend they've been victimized? Why do people make up stories that, uh, I mean, usually it's not this bad, right? I mean, death is pretty, kind of the big one, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it is because people want attention. They don't feel that they're getting the attention they need in real life. Oh, you're raising your hand. Sarah Heppler in the back. Yes. But why would you, if you want attention, why would you pretend that you're dead? Because remember that thing? It's like people uh, imagine their own funeral, right? They want to like see who's crying. They want to see what nice things people are saying to them about them or maybe horrible things. Um, and they don't feel the the kind of the hoaxers that I've written about, some of them, they don't feel that on their own, they are they are worthy of love, that they're going to get the love that they want. I'm not even going to say deserve. Who, who's to say who deserves yeah. what? That's a terrible yeah. word. But we all desire, I mean, almost all of us desire to be loved. We desire to be desired. We, we want to have somebody look at us in that way or feel tenderly. And I think, of course, this is why these books sell. Um, they make you feel desired. They, even if it's not you, you're living vicariously, you get swept away. You're the, in the, the 50 shades of gray or whatever it is. And, and it's just, it's, it's a moment to sort of like be carried away. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. You, I, I saw some music last night. I was crying. It was so beautiful. This, this person's voice, just this, this feeling of being touched, whether it's emotionally or physically. Um, and maybe as someone like a Susan Meacham, whoever she really is, she craved it so much and she wasn't feeling she was getting it no matter how many books she put out or how many Facebooks she had that she thought, you know what? I have to feel it. I'm going to go for the big one. I'm going to go for the big one. Don't you think she also was probably trying to avoid something? I mean, like, there are other ways to get a bunch of attention um, other than faking your own death. And <laughs> Whoa. And, yeah. I mean, it's really extreme. It makes me think she was avoiding something. I don't know if she was getting bullied and she was sort of like, I'm done with this. Um, didn't she say that, like, the whole thing came from her mental health crisis that was brought about and she tried to commit suicide. And so then her family suggested she do this, but you're suggesting that family doesn't even exist. Right. Uh, so, she's a hall of mirrors. We don't know who she is. Yeah. Apparently uh, she had some, uh, I don't know if it was in her return letter or someplace else saying, yes. You, oh yeah, it was, it was in her return uh, post saying, you know what? My family basically thought, you know, I tried to kill myself again or I tried to kill myself and they thought, you know, better to just like lay low and pretend it worked for your mental health. I mean, yeah, I makes no this, sense. This, no, it doesn't make any but sense. Isn't it possible that this whole thing is a troll, like top to tail? Absolutely. But I wonder like for what reason, like where. Like a Banksy performance piece or like a, like an Andy Kaufman. I'm not, I'm, it probably isn't because all those books are too much. That's too much. It's also it probably is. Uh, so it's probably a romance writer. She wrote all these books. And then for some reason, I hear you on the attention thing. And I think you're like half right. I think there's something else we're missing that we don't know. We could never know what it is that makes her need to disappear. And then she's like, I'm tired of this. Yeah. And, and you know, and so she comes back kind of thinking like enough time has passed. It won't be that big of a deal. I, I, this is, this is, I mean, this is just beyond delusional, you know, I don't, I don't, well, this person is very immature, very, very immature. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, and, I, and, and that genre, I must say, I do like a good romance. I like a really smart romance. Like one of my favorite movies is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which basically is like an incredibly smart and funny and twisty little rom-com. Um, I like Her, the movie with Joaquin Phoenix. Mm-hmm. That's a really, mm-hmm. really good one. Yeah, but Sarah, so these I, are not, I mean, there's romance involved no, but, in this, but it's not. But they, but they are, you know, they're about one of the topics that I think is the most important in the world, which is love and the relationship between either a man and a woman, or if you prefer, a lady and a lady. Or a lady and a they. I don't know what's happening out there these days. I want to. I want to include all types. But here's the point: I love this subject, but as a genre, it tends to be adolescent and very mired in fantasy. You know, I I, I I'm not too familiar with with romance books, but I am really familiar with like romance songs, and I love boy bands. And I oh, I wrote a story you. once that like. I remember a line in there was that you could boil down every single boy band to three song to three letters, girl, only you. (laughs) That's it. It's just whatever it is. It's girl, only you. It's just, I'm this, I'm this hot, vaguely androgynous female looking pretty boy. And all these women want me, but I can't see them. I can only see you. And it's that delusion. You know, that's the delusion of Fifty Shades of Grey. That's the delusion of Twilight. It's, it's girl only you over ad, ad infinitum. So anyway, this person feels like she was drawn to that for a reason. She probably doesn't have uh, love in her life. This is a way of, creating the love that she wanted for herself. We, you know, I, that's what writing does. It's actually a beautiful impulse, but she's gone a little, her plan has gone awry. So Matt Welch says every modern country song is like, you know, you know, girl, we've been together so long, but you're still so hot. And I want you so so hot. And that is exactly what these romance books are, right? It's like, who's reading these books? The people that are reading these books are middle-aged women. Uh, you know, most middle-aged women in America are married. I don't know the percentage, but, you know, probably more than 50%. They are, they, you know, you're married for 30 years to the same dude. You want that hotness. You know, you want, or you, or you, you want to, you want to feel that again. So there's a market. Great. It's almost like a, you know, it's like a tool, Right. Well, Um, much like porn, women get weaned on unrealistic expectations of romance and then grandly disappointed when they end up in long term relationships. And the romance becomes the romance books or songs or whatever become a way to salve or or feed the beast of hunger that was created by being weaned on the romance songs. Right. And you can escape into it. Like, you know, Calgon, take me away. Right. I love. And by the way, like I do this. This is not like my critique of other people. This is sort of like my critique of what I've also done. Okay. Well, uh, I don't know how much more I will. I will say I did looked up. Wait, we're just getting started. Okay, okay, okay. But I want to let me just add something here. Okay, so I did look up uh, some of Meacham's books today. Okay, Um, I just picked one on. um, So people that don't know Sarah and I know this because we're authors and have books on Amazon. So Susan, I picked one of her books. It is the. 419,222nd most popular Kindle book on on Amazon with 25 reviews. Just for some comparison, my book, uh, To the Bridge, is 46,000th 
most popular with 1,581 reviews. Sarah's book, um, Blackout, is 64,000 spot popular with 2,716 reviews. Okay, so Sarah's book- What the hell was that? I don't even know what numbers you quoted at me. uh, So I was, the first one I quoted for you, it's 64,000 and change, most popular Kindle book right now on Amazon. Uh, It's probably changed because someone bought another copy and they can bounce 10,000 copies. Once you're down in that lower echelon, you can sell two copies and bounce up by 30,000. Oh, absolutely. Uh, But you have, you have- just for comparison's sake, you have 2,716 reviews on your book. Okay. That's a lot. Okay. That's a lot. I, uh, uh, she has 25. So I don't know that she was very popular. And also like, there's not a lot of money in self-publishing. You know, you sell it for, for $2.99 and you have to give Amazon whatever. And then you got to, she's also involved in some kerfuffle about like stealing people's cover images. She just seems like, a whole kind of failed confection here. I I almost, I kind of feel bad for her, whoever she is, if indeed she is anyone. We did find a couple of screenshots of someone that might be her, you know. So uh, let me ask you a question, Nancy. Yeah. Why are we interested in her? Well, I tend to be extremely interested in hoaxers, but the problem for me with Susan Meacham is that Besides the faking of the death, which is, you know, a bit extreme, um, it's just not, I don't find it to be that interesting. And I also don't really think this is a literary story so much. Oh, well, it's not a literary story because she's not part of the literary community. She's part of an alt-literary community. It's more of a Facebook story. It's like a Facebook group story. Yeah. Um, And I think it's interesting because... We live in a world where truth can feel so groundless. And what I mean by that is, I don't know that this person exists. And and whether she, you know, Susan Meachin could turn out to be a woman that wrote those books and actually did die. And now this is a hoax that's being per- perpetrated. Like, I don't believe anything about this story because the levels of deception and the possibilities for deception are so vast and so easy. It would be so easy to do this, um, to, to make up stuff. And this is something that when you find yourself on dating apps, which I do from time to time, um, the possibilities of deception on the other side of the screen are so massive that it is no wonder people would want to disappear into a story where you meet some cowboy in a bar and he sweeps you off your feet. That's the way it should be. Instead of dealing with, you know, a bunch of people that might or might not be the people they are, that might or might not look like their pictures, that might be some middle-aged lady in Dubuque, you have no freaking idea. Meanwhile, you're like falling in love with that person. And what the fuck is love anyway? If if if, if you can have it with somebody that's not even real on the other side. So the the hall of mirrors that is our modern life. That's what this story brings up for me. And a, go ahead. And, and well, it's just, a, it's just particularly acute in the online dating world where most of us are on the apps. Most of us are meeting virtually before we meet in real life. Um, just that phrase in real life is, is becoming something of a nonsense phrase because Twitter is real life and texting is real life. Um, what is our real life? And, you know, I'm starting to, I'm like one puff away from being a college stoner right now. 
Um, <laughs> hold on, hold on. <laughs> Wake and bake. <sighs> well, no, you know, I, I just, you know what this reminds me of is the uh, Monteteo story, the the football player, oh, the Monteteo story, who got who got catfished, who and what? Okay. What did the person who was catfishing Matatia? Well, we talked about this and we'll put a link to the program. He was a college football player who had this romance with a gal. She could never meet him because this and that. He was in love. And then she, she got very, very sick. And then he spent like months and talking to her. And then the hospital bed and got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then she died. And um, it was a big deal because he was like in a championship game and the kind of the whole team came this gathered so around him. And then what happened? Oh, she came back to life. So look, it's Jesus. It's uh, it's uh, Susan Meacham. And it, what was her name? Linnea? Linnea, I Linnea. think. Linnea. Okay, so now see, look. There's a, so, okay, she came back to life and it was like, because this was a, like, Susan Meacham, and, it's not that big a story. This was like, wait, what? And it's so interesting to see Linnea slash, I don't remember what his real name was, um, trying to like equivocate and say, well, but listen, it's really okay because it was this. It's like, no, it's yeah. Linnea was really a dude that had right. played on a high school football team with Monte Teo, and then years, that, years the, the, I think his name was Ronnie or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, he ended up transitioning, and that was such a head scrambler. And you know, it really begs the question or prompts the question. I'm always told that I use that phrase wrong. It prompts the question of what is love. Because love in a large way is a projection, a fantasy projection, or it's a delusion and a, a dream that we're both participating in. And, you know, love can be a million different things. So it doesn't just have to be that. But, you know, I would argue if I were writing the novel about Monteteo, which I now that I've announced it, I want to do, um, I would make it so that he really, it was really like a, like a, like it was a truly gratifying love relationship. And, they both got something out of it. Absolutely. Oh, no, I think that that's true. I think he did get something out of it. I remember my mother had this little thing tacked to the bulletin board throughout my childhood. I don't remember the exact quote. and it's But it said something like, it is better to love than to be loved. And it wasn't yeah. in the Shakespearean sense. I think it was really in, in the feeling. You know what it's like to be in love with someone and you just think about them and you get that like ring that like you just like flush and you you can't like you remember kissing them and you're just like ah and it feels great when you think like they love me too that feels great but the feeling of loving is active and that is an incredible thing and so okay so did a Susan meet we can say that Monte Teo he he felt that love and Linnea like felt that love. What did Susan Meachin feel? Like was she he, he got to feel like she was a writer and that she mattered. Yeah, oh that's such a weird thing. Do you have have you had people say like I really want to write. I really want to be a writer. You're like, "Awesome. What are you writing?" Well, I don't write. It's like, "Well, I don't know what to tell you." Like it's, it's what writers do. It's just they want they want us they want sort of the mantle of it. They want sort of the identity of being a writer. I'm fine. I'm it's it's a I think a lot of people will pay a lot of money to get that feeling and uh of love or being a writer no, or the feeling that they're a writer. Oh yeah, they'll go to grad school uh and 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 pay a lot of money to get that uh MBA or whatever, but then they don't 
they don't write. That's fine. I, you know what? People can do exactly what they want with their time and their money. And if they get gratification out of it and read a whole bunch of books, that's great. That's totally fine. And I'm not being sarcastic or snotty at all because I'm not like that, Sarah. Well, I think I've noticed over my lifetime the times that like I've front loaded the fact that I'm a writer because I'm so insecure about everything else. You know, it's like it's like I'm not feeling good about my relationship status or I'm not feeling good about how I look or whatever. So it's like writing, 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 writing. It's like a total, you know, it's an identity. I do. I do put that identity out there in order to like because I, I get a hit off of it, too. So I don't I, I don't. Uh, I had been writing for a, a living for 10 years and I still wouldn't call myself a writer. I was like, oh, I write. I just couldn't do it because it sounded, it sounded too amazing. Like I couldn't, I couldn't say, well, that could be me. I, I couldn't, I just, I, I used do to it. call my, I used to call myself a kind of writer, maybe. Kind of, yeah, exactly. I just couldn't do it. And then finally, at some point I'm like, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. Like, yes, you're a writer. And I know that now, but it was the same when I was a runner, I'd run like eight or nine marathons. And I, I wouldn't say I was a runner. I'd say, oh, I just, I run. And finally my sister-in-law is like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> just like, take it. Um, and then I just stopped running. Um, well, I, I find her, I don't, you know, a lot of people have piled on this story. I just find it kind of, I find can it. We, can we, Nancy, can we yeah. send love to Suzanne Meachin, whoever she is? Can you we know, ask her to come on our podcast? Oh, Sarah. I, yeah. Okay, fine. I'll do an interview okay. with her. You don't have to. Uh, well, no, actually, I think that would actually be fascinating to talk to her. I did. Um, I was poking around this morning and um, she hasn't talked to anybody, but she might. You know, here's the thing. People become like they get very embarrassed or publicly humiliated and they kind of turtle for a while. But then it's like, wait a minute, I can't keep turtling as Susan Meacham has has proven. So sure, go ahead. She was I saw a picture for her on TikTok. I, I think she deleted that account. But um yeah. Sure. Well I would like to talk to Susan Meachin and I would like to say that if she's somebody that wanted to be bigger than she was and she was somebody that feared that people wouldn't love her, you know that I sympathize because I've been in that place too. And uh I would like to hear her story. You know, I, I screenshotted um, what you uh, sent me this morning about the um, dressing for work. And are you are, okay, I want to, I'm making an announcement now. It's an official announcement. <laughs> there is one nice person on this podcast and it's not me. Okay. <laughs> there is no doubt of the, of, in terms of the tender hearted person who is just wants to embrace the, all the possibilities. I'm just not judgmental. This is really it. I am missing the judgmental gene. And it has to do with being raised by a therapist. And I just think everything is interesting. I don't judge well, it. And I think it makes me a fucking amoral freak sometimes. You know, like I will, I, I think if, if you want to, like I am also the degenerate that will just be like, yeah, that's cool that you do that. Like I... I <laughs> I don't care. You sit in your own film. I'm only no curious. No, there's actually, okay, wait. There's this fascinating part in Louise Perry's book that I've been thinking about. Well, you know, she wrote The End of Casual Sex or The End of the Sexual Revolution. And she's quoting Jonathan Haidt, who I love. And it's this thing in, I think it's in The Righteous Mind, where he's saying, he's talking about why, like what morals are, whatever. And so he asks a group of people a group of students if you could fuck a chick a dead chicken no and nobody would ever know and the chicken was dead 
does it matter? And I was like, no, it doesn't matter. Go fuck your chicken. And Louise Perry is like, and this is what's wrong with the world today. You know, like she's using it as like the fact that students would come to the you do you conclusion that fucking a chicken was okay is what's wrong with the culture. And I can see that intellectually. I know there must be a moral framework against fucking chickens. But if that chicken is dead and nobody knows and you don't care, I don't understand. Make the moral argument. I'm. I guess it's not a moral argument for me. For me, it just does not sound very hot. I'm I just think I wanted to do it. <laughs> it's like there's a lot of things I'd like to fuck before a dead chicken. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the um, question was um, very phallocentric <laughs> um, because I don't, I mean. Yeah, it would be tough. A, a cock? Um, well, okay, so. Am anyway, I, I don't think I'm nice so you're much not, as you're I'm right. like endlessly curious and and you, and absolutely missing some sort of judgment. All right, so microchip. here's where we overlap. I too am endlessly curious and I want to know, like starving for it. But I think I am. It, I don't know if it's so judgmental. Girl, you're feisty. I'm a little feisty, but uh, I was just bored by what you sent me this morning. I found it boring. Fine. I find well, most fashion boring. Why don't yeah. you tell people what the hell it was? I can't remember what it was. Uh, if you're non-binary work clothes. It was non-binary fashion for work. And, you know, it was like uh, basically a woman that identified, I'm sorry, a person that identified as non-binary talking about um, dressing for work. And what I found was so fascinating was these people that were talking about like, well, I have to wear dresses at, at work, but then I... I, I wear jeans underneath them. That and was actually cool. Home, I take off my dress. I mean, that's the kind of shit Catholic school girls used to do. You know, you would be one girl, you would be one way at school and one way with your parents. And you would you would wear things under, you know, it was kind of like code switching. And so I find that really fascinating that somebody would do that. And, you know, whatever is going on with the trans conversation, I don't pretend to know, but I tend to think that it's a, it's a, it's a sort of genuinely new phase of, human evolution that leads us toward kind of transhumanism or merging with computers in a sort of like identity as a drop down menu. And you could choose your age. There's something called trans age. You know, I don't identify as 48. And, and, you know, you could choose. And, and so, so all of this is like endlessly fascinating to me. And you were just like, I'm bored. And, well, you know, that's fine. I'm bored by like, 90% of what's on the internet or what I watch. Like I watched a really serious documentary last night. I'm not even going to say what it was, but I, it was like so serious, you know, like award, award contender, contender. And I just like 10 minutes. I was like, I can't do this. It's too self-serious. Okay. Speaking of award contender, I'm not, it's not in my hot box, but I just have to say, I watched this movie, the Fablemans with my mom. Oh, you watched the Fablemans. Uh, this movie was truly terrible. I mean, oh no, truly terrible. I, I and then again, it's like That's, you know this what? This is a new Steven Spielberg movie about his childhood. Yes, and other people. I'm. I. I after I watched it, I was like, I don't even. I can't even understand how this was stitched together. Um, but people liked it. I'm like, okay, you know, great. They liked it. Great. I'm glad that they had enjoyment from it. I. I couldn't believe my eyes. I was like. Are you kidding? But you know what? Okay, I'm. I, that, well, that. was Michelle Williams good? Because I love her. 
oh man, I thought she was just chewing up the freaking scenery, man. Mm. I just, I, his I just, every, every, it looked, I'll tell you what it looked like to me. It looked completely fake. Every single thing looked fake. Just fake, 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 fake. And then like overdrawn and kind of like mean. You, and you know, you, you mentioned that Glass Onion looked fake. You do realize that all movies are fake. You what? do know that's not real. What are you talking about? You mean, okay, we're going to talk. I, off the, I, we're going to talk off air. Okay, mom. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that, that was that didn't work for me. Um, that's that's that. I would put that movie in that little parcel of movies that we were talking about a few weeks ago, like Babylon and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's the it's the classic directors of the of the late Hollywood age writing the eulogies for the Hollywood that's disappearing. Well, apparently, last night I found out. Um, this is according to Matt Welch when we were walking home from the music last night. He, I told him I didn't like the Fablemans. And he said, you know, Steven Spielberg, like his first 15 movies, the undercurrent was about how uh, the bad dad, how dad had yeah. failed and all of this. And like whether it's the text or the subtext or whatever. And he was citing a few things. And he's like, and all of a sudden he makes this biographical movie because he realizes it's mom who has failed. Ooh. But I mean, it's 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 so ham handed. Anyway, my capsule review. I'm, I hope I'm, people enjoy it. I hope I'm they do see it anyway because yeah. I'm interested in it. But yep. Uh, yep. but yeah, that's not the first. You're not the first person I've heard that didn't like it. Okay, um, Sarah, we had something else kind of interesting we wanted to talk about, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Do you want me to? to yeah, can to, you tee us up there? Jesus, Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. My better half. Um, there was a piece in the New York Times magazine, um, this week. I think it's the magazine. Maybe it's just it the was. paper. I think, well, I think it was the magazine. Okay. Anyway, uh, it's, a it's kind of one of these disasters in academia story. And it was sent to me by several different people. So I knew it was like up our alley. Um, the title of the piece is a lecturer showed a painting of the prophet Muhammad. She lost her job. Uh, this is a story by Vimal Patel. Um, the uh, Let me just give you the little capsule summary here. Uh, Erica Prater was an adjunct art history professor at Hamline University. That's a small liberal arts college in St. Paul, Minnesota. And as part of her syllabus, she showed a 14th century painting of the prophet Muhammad. Um, I don't know anything about these things. About, I don't know much about art history. But if you do, I'll let you know that this is one of the earliest Islamic illustrated histories of the world. It's called a Compendium of Chronicles. Um, and the angel Gabriel is pointing to the prophet Muhammad. And one expert who's quoted in this, in this story calls it a masterpiece of Persian manuscript painting. Now, Professor Prater knew... Um, she knew that this was going to be controversial. She warns about this in the syllabus of the class. Okay, um, I'm just going to interrupt you one second. So she warns about it in the syllabus. So you have to think of college students, how carefully they are reading the entire syllabus before. Yeah, they didn't read it. Starts. Yeah, they, they don't look at it. So, okay. She warned them about it beforehand. 
but like kind of immediately beforehand, as far as I understand. I well, what was she supposed to do? Say 10 minutes? No, 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 no. I'm just saying, I mean, when I first read the article, I thought it was like she'd been telling them all year, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. No, but she, apparently put it, it wasn't. she put it in the syllabus yeah. that, it, that this was this class was going to have. Right. And I understand that that I understand that uh, college students don't read the syllabus, but. I'm sorry, that's on them. Of course, that's not. Of I mean, course, of like, course, of like course. we've now entered a, a a world where like it's now the the, the teacher's responsibility that yep. students don't read the syllabus. I mean, come on. Oh, okay. Oh, but that, but so, Sarah, that is where we are. You know that. So she was warned about it. The the class was warned about it before she flicked on the image. Uh, nobody said anything during the class, but after the class, a Muslim student came up to her and complained about it. And she very, you know, prudently, uh, you know, she spoke with the student and then she told a faculty member, her, the head of her faculty, who said, you know, hey, it sounds like you did everything you, you, you should. Um, I've got your back on this. And then, as so often happens in these things, all hell broke loose. It became a national controversy. Um. I don't know exactly how it blew up, but at some point, the student who makes the complaint, um, she's a Sudanese student. Her name is Aram Wedatala, and she complains, and then she's interviewed by the newspaper, the college newspaper. And she describes herself repeatedly as blindsided. I'll quote her here. She's like, I'm like, this can't be real. As a Muslim and black person, I don't feel like I belong and I don't think I'll ever belong in a community where they don't value me as a member and they don't show the same respect that I show them. So those are some hot words and they're going to get pickup. And guess what? They did. I mean, this is now being covered in the New York Times. Um, since then, the adjunct professor uh, was her offer to teach the next semester was rescinded. Um, sh- then. You know, everybody in her immediate, like, like when they were talking to her, were like, we understand this is complicated, but they totally threw her under the bus. Of course in, they did. <laughs> in, in conversations with the students. And, you know, she was summoned to a video chat with the dean who compared showing that image to using a racial epithet for black people. I wonder she, which one she was talking about. Uh, she's black. The adjunct professor, by the way. She, uh, yeah, she is black. Yeah. Um, but I just wondered if you had any guesses on what the racial epithet for black people might be. Yeah, I think it begins with a N and ends with an A. Yeah. Got it. Close. We'll invite Camille on our podcast. Yeah, 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 and he yeah, can yeah. he can tell yeah. he can tell people who <laughs> what that is. Um on November seventh, uh the vice president for inclusive excellence. I just want oh. to pause a moment. Oh no, no, to say that say that, again. that title. Say it again. The vice president for inclusive excellence. He, they couldn't get the president. He was busy with more. Everybody knows the vice president has all the power. This guy's like oh. the Carl Rove okay. of Hamline University <laughs> of inclusive excellence. Okay. Anyway, he sends an email to all university employees saying that certain actions taken in an online class. Oh, I guess this was an online class, too. That's like another level of like Jesus. Um. Anyway. Certain actions taken in an online class were, quote, undeniably inconsiderate, disrespectful, and Islamophobic. 
They have a forum to discuss this. Of course they do. And one of the religious professors asks, you know, a pretty legitimate question because he's aware that actually in the Muslim community, this is not settled law. Like there are some people that think showing photos of the Prophet Muhammad is fine as long as they're not mocking or derogatory. And some people that have like a much harder evangelical line, um, not evangelical, but like fundamental line. Yeah. And, you know, that's an understandable split in a large, in like a large faith. There's going to be people that think differently. So this guy pipes up and he says, you know, you say that we're supposed to listen to Muslim voices, but how, which ones? Because Muslims disagree on this. And he's just kind of shot down. And afterward, two of the big wigs on campus kind of come up to him and say, like, now is not the time to, to oh, ask. Oh, yeah. It's not no. that when you're when we're having a discussion about this stuff, now's not the time to bring up any subtlety or nuance, right? Because God forbid we come up with a, you know, a fuller answer to this. To be clear, the discussion forum is not a time for discussion. Right. This is no time for discussion, folks. We are so in catch twenty-two land. So she you know, adjunct professors, they're sort of teaching at the uh, at the the goodwill of the the school. I mean, they're not obliged to hire well, they're her. They're paid that. shit and they're treated yeah. poorly. Yeah. I when we started talking about this, I first of all, I believe anybody should be able to teach whatever they want in whatever fashion they want. I believe students should not have to study something that they don't want to study. And that that's fine. I do have a little bit of a question about, and maybe she's, well, she's 42. You know, she's not 24, the professor. I do wonder whether she, you know, went to her department head and said, look, I, I think this is important for the context that I'm teaching. I think it's very, very beautiful. It's kind of understood to be really beautiful. Um, I'm just letting you know, I think I want to include this because you know, she has heard about Salman Rushdie. She has heard about Charlie Hebdo. I mean, she is aware that this can be a pretty big issue and cause some pretty big problems, including people being murdered. All right. So I wonder if that would have been. Now, I'm not saying she should have, because as I, I preface this by saying, we should be able to teach what we want, see what we want rejected if we want to without being violent, but with sure. discretion, et cetera. But I do wonder if she took that into consideration. And if she did, if she just thought it was enough, like, hey, I put it in the syllabus. And well, I don't know. But for what it's worth, this New York Times article quotes a New York, uh, I'm sorry, a Duke University professor who shows pictures of the Prophet Muhammad regularly okay. in class and gives no warning whatsoever. Great. I, I, now, for me. Now, you know, he is Muslim. And I think uh, that makes a difference. Oh, so see, this is this is really okay. So then, okay, only Muslims are allowed to do to show Muslim images. Only Jews are allowed to, you know, light a menorah. Only Chinese women are right allowed to write novels about Chinese women. Only Mexicans are allowed to cook Mexican food. This is making uh -oh. the world tiny. This makes the world is. tiny, and I cannot. It's exclusive. It's not inclusive. I can never ever countenance the fact that, first of all, that anybody wants to make the world tiny, but look, I'm not in charge of the whole world, but at a university where your brain is supposed to be growing and blooming like a flower that you want, no, 
No, no, no, no, no. If you are not exactly the kind of person I feel should be allowed to do this, no. What the, why do we even have universities? Why do they even exist then if that's going to be the case? Well, this is a really interesting point. You know, one of the, the points that the article makes is that liberal arts schools like Hamline, which are small, they have they have shrinking population. They're in they're in the death spirals because we don't need them anymore. And so one of the things they're trying to do is appeal to diverse students who have tr- have felt out of have felt shut out of more traditional tracks. And so one of the things that's happening is these liberal arts schools are getting an influx of diversity and they don't really know how to deal with it. And so this is part of the clumsiness of it. Um, and they need to cater them because they're desperate to keep the, the doors open. Um, but for what it's worth, Penn America, who has not entirely covered itself in glory le- no, lately. No, they have not. Um, they called this one of the most egregious violations of academic freedom in recent memory. Good. Well, good. And I wonder what FIRE is doing, the um, Foundation for Individual Rights. It used to be in education. Now it's an expression. I'm sure that they're they're going to get in there, too. I'm trying to think of that super, super liberal college in Boston. Is it Emerson? No, with an H. Anyway, my, my nephew went there and he was kind of Haverford? No, 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 no. I'll 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 think of it. But um he was there and he was there when um I, I quoted this in an article that I wrote once. He was in class and the teacher said, um, all men are potential rapists. And he just I said, What did you say? When he said that, he's like, I said, did you say, well, you know, all women are potential murderers. And he said, no, 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 Nancy, you don't say anything. You just sort of shut up and take it. It was so doctrinaire. And that school, I'm going to find the name of it, the following year, I think after he graduated, they had an incoming class of nine. Nine. Okay. That's wild. Because... People, I mean, these are schools that cost forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. And at a certain point, you know, maybe that's where you really, really, really super want to go and you're gonna get all your loans and you're gonna get all your scholarships. But a lot of times these are like parents paying for this. And it's like, I'm not, that's not no, I'm not gonna do it. I gotta I gotta find I think it kind of came out of the death spiral, but anyway, this is true. A lot of these very, very liberal arts colleges who are kind of like, you know, speaking the speak. Um, are going to put themselves out of business at a certain point because the world is bigger than that. The world is bigger than what it's been pumping out um, in terms of exclusivity for the past couple of years. And I got to tell you, I don't, I don't cry for them because your job is not to limit the world for your students. It's to open up the world. So let's see what happens at, uh, at Hamline, which is uh, St. Paul. Yep. Yep. So... Um, well, Nancy, I think we're about ready to go into our, our paid subscribers only content. What are we going to talk about over there? We are going to talk about a movie that I watched super fast last night because you really wanted me to watch it. And that movie, should I say what it's called? Mm-hmm. It's called The Menu. <clears throat> and we may also talk about uh, a little segment called Sarah Goes to the Doctor. Uh <laughs> But before we... I think it could also be called Sarah's doctor confronts her about her smoking. (laughs) Could be that. Um, But before we... I'm going to just leave you on a little tidbit and I'm going to follow up with it at the hot box later. So my mom, who's getting... She's got some memory stuff going on. And uh, she's by herself a couple of days a week. And I wanted 
her to have a little companion, and I bought her a robot kitten. No way. I did. I bought it. No way. A, yes. So she wanted a kitten, but she can't have a kitten because. Okay, say it again. Say it again. Kitten. She can't have a kitten because <laughs> she is a kidney recipient and um, you're not allowed to be around a litter box if you've had an organ transplant. Mm. So, um, and even though the cat would probably mostly go outside, she lives up in the country. It, we just, that's uh, not going to work. So I got her this little robot kitten. And I got to say, when I looked it up online, the first thing you see is they bring it to like elderly people that are having memory issues because it's really comforting and it's really sweet. And you can, you scratch its head or its belly and it, it meows and kind of like oh holds its paws up and oh it doesn't God. walk, but she does like it. I have to say. It does kind- it look like a kitten? Oh yeah. Well, it's a cat. Actually, it's it's not a robot kitten. It's a robot cat. It's a full size cat. Uh, okay. I'll put a link. But um, it's I have to say it was pretty cute. And you know what? Maybe somebody listening here has an elderly parent with memory issues, or maybe not even an elderly. Or maybe they're allergic to cats, but they want a companion. This is really Japanese, by the way. Oh like, yeah, for the, sure. The whole like Tamagotchi uh, uh, companion. Like we're all it's it's over for the human race. Have I the ever robot cats are going to be so much superior to? Well, I can't say this one is like super sophisticated. I'm sure there are better ones. Had I already talked about the fact how I how I murdered my daughter's gigapet? Did we talk about that on an early Mm -hmm. episode? Well, we'll end with this story. I can't remember if it was the Tamagotchi or the Gigapet, but one of these things, (laughs) these little little electronic things, they're like they're no bigger than a deck of cards. Um she got it. She was like 10. She's begging for it. I'm like, oh, whatever. Well, it was this thing where you had to like feed it at a certain time, feed it, change it, talk to it, whatever it was. It was like a real baby. And if you didn't, it just kept wailing. And of course, she's 10 and then she's sick of it. I, You couldn't. There was no way to take the batteries out because that was the whole thing. It's like it's That's a real point. thing. So I took it out into the backyard and I smashed it with a hammer. <laughs> I, I murdered it. I did. And oh my god! I, I told her I was like, if you're not taking care of this thing, I'm it's it's out of here. I killed it. <laughs> I did. That's amazing. Okay. Before we go, I have yeah. one last question. Yes, ma'am. What is the name of this podcast? The name of this podcast is "Smoke 'Em If You Got 'Em" with the very nice Sarah Hepla and the very not very nice Nancy Wommelman. So we'll see you guys in a minute. Bye. 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 